For more information on today's podcast, check out the update series 2022 Lesson 11, Conscious Sedation in the Urology Office. Subscriptions are now available on auau.auanet.org. Good afternoon and welcome to another of the AUA University podcast series sponsored by the AUA's Office of Education. Uh, my name is Jay Raman. I'm professor of urology at Penn State Health and chair of the AUA's Office of Education. Uh, this is another one of our educational podcasts and today's specific topic is about conscious sedation in the urology office. Um, it's really my pleasure uh, in this podcast to host Dr. David Bach. Uh, Dr. Bach is medical director of Kansas City Urologic Care, which is a 37-physician urology practice consisting of urologists, radiation oncologists, medical oncologists, pathologists, as well as incorporating uh, numerous advanced practice providers. Uh, he's also one of our ABU uh, trustees. And uh, David, it's really my pleasure to have you. Thank you so much for taking some time today and joining us. Well, thank you, Jay. Um, just a quick overview of, of the program, just to orient many of you, there, there's a very good AUA update series lesson um, that really goes over a lot of the concepts that we're going to be talking about with regards to office-based conscious sedation in greater detail. And, and I'll just be working and walking through with David some of the, the high-level concepts uh, just with regards to uh, implementation, patient safety, and other sorts of um, issues. So David, maybe we'll just start really at a high level and, and just, you know, we're a procedure-based specialty. Um, and obviously, you know, not all procedures can occur in an, in an ambulatory surgery center or in an operative uh, theater. So there's clearly um, a need, right, for, for sedation in the office setting. Maybe give us some, you know, sort of high-level points on, on, on that concept. Well, sure. Um, you know, we as there are demands on, on each of our time, on our time, for example, we all want to maximize our efficiency. And by minimizing our time out of the office, spending as much time in the office, seeing as many patients as we can, both to uh, accommodate the uh, demand and also to reduce the healthcare costs, there's real motivation towards uh, moving procedures uh, towards the office type setting. Um, I, I would imagine that well, I know for my patients, for example, it probably is something of a, of a satisfier, right? I, I feel like as soon as you have to go into the hospital or maybe an ASC setting, it it it, it becomes much more of a to do for the for the patient experience. So I'm sure being able to sort of deliver this in an office setting is is maybe a, a big patient pleaser. Oh, for sure, uh, it just uh, takes away that higher level of anxiety associated with hospitals, and even to a lesser extent, uh, anxiety associated with surgery centers. Because generally speaking, the patients are more familiar with the office personnel, they're familiar with the doctor, it's a place they've been before, and uh, consequently, they're not as intimidated in the office. So maybe just to, to or orient our group, when we talk about th this concept of um, conscious sedation, what, what are we talking about here? And, and maybe just to help before we go into, you know, what kind of procedures we can do, what is conscious sedation? And, and, and in your mind, what do you think about that versus, I don't know, maybe like a general anesthetic or something more significant? Well, there are probably two aspects to conscious sedation. Uh, and that is there's an anxiolytic portion and an analgesic portion. And so those are 
oftentimes commingled or inter intermingled, but they are slightly different. And uh, so those are two aspects. But generally speaking, with conscious sedation, whether it's with uh, for with an anxiolytic like uh, nitrous oxide or uh, analgesic like uh, fentanyl, these patients are only sedated uh, mildly. They're still awake. They still have all their faculties. They can still respond to simple commands, um, whereas under general anesthesia, uh, they cannot do that. So you know, sort of practical question that would, would then come up is um, when you look at sort of the spectrum of office-based procedures, um, maybe for yourself personally or in your practice, how do you sort of um, determine um, maybe which ones are most suitable for local anesthetic, which ones are better for perhaps some conscious sedation, and, and maybe, maybe it's not just procedure, but maybe what patient factors play into that decision-making process? Well, that's a broad question. Um, the, the, first, the, e easy part, uh, the easy part, easy, easy portion of patient selection deals with the anxious patient. There are some procedures that are classically performed in, in the office, transrectal ultrasound, cystoscopy, vasectomy, which in general are performed under uh, local anesthetic, uh, in, in, the, in the office or sometimes really minimally anesthetic. But certainly there is, there's a huge subset of patients who are just extremely anxious uh, about that and really cannot have a successful outcome. And outcome not only includes the, uh, the clinical outcome, but the patient's personal outcome about how they feel about the procedure, unless they're anesthetized or unless they're uh, sedated. And so that's the easy patient. Um, it gets a little more complicated with more painful procedures like a prosthetic uh, uh, urethral lift procedure, for example, which we frequently will do under uh, nitrous uh, in our office. Now, those patients have to be uh, ha have to be thoroughly vetted by the urologist. If, for example, the patient is extremely sensitive to an office cystoscopy, then nitrous oxide just just isn't going to work. But if the patient is not terribly anxious. Uh, then that type of procedure can be performed. And obviously, patients who have significant uh, uh, co comorbid conditions, uh, you know, advanced COPD, uh, bad cardiovascular disease, really, really are not candidates. And so we really don't want to put a square peg in a round hole because at the center of all this, at the center of all this is patient safety. And if we don't put that first, um, then we're losing our way. Maybe um, one, one um, sort of question I would ask you, just in, in the variety of different procedures, and I'm sort of dovetailing this. I did a, a podcast last week um, with uh, Buttermian, who's up at, at Albany, and we talked a little bit, that whole discussion was about transperineal and transrectal uh, prostate biopsy. And just maybe one question I would ask you, just in your practice, is um, have you found that when you're doing the, the transperineal versus a transrectal, uh, the need for anesthetic to be given in an office setting for one or the other, or, or has it really been dependent less on the approach, but more on the patient? It's just more of an anecdotal question. Yeah, I have to answer this totally, totally anecdotally because uh, we've had pretty good success with uh, actually a uh, local anesthetic with transperineal biopsies. And I think that that's very much patient driven uh, based on in essence, what the patient brings to the table uh, anxiety, anxiety wise. Um, 
same token, not certainly not everybody's a candidate for a transperineal biopsy. It's, it's too invasive for some. It's uncomfortable for some. You know, occasionally the block doesn't work as well. Even though we block everybody, we, we block everybody. So it's somewhat patient dependent. But uh, what I found interesting is we have chose we do a number of our fusion biopsies uh, under under sedation and. That is a huge selling point to, to these patients when they've had a prior transrectal biopsy. And then if they need a second biopsy, uh, say three, four, five years later now with a fusion technique, that's a very, very easy sell to the patient and just lifts, lifts a huge uh, burden of anxiety uh, when they're informed that it can be done under sedation. Hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I would definitely say when I trained, we, we didn't really do very many of these at all under sedation. And uh, we actually do a lot of prostate pipes under sedation. And to your point exactly, the level of anxiety for some patients who walk in the office when they find out that this could be a procedure where they're getting some sort of anxiolytic or some sort of sedative, it's really remarkable. And, and sometimes I've actually even noticed that it's been a, a factor that's dissuaded them in some cases for actually coming back for some of their subsequent biopsies just because of some of that. So it, interesting. I think it's a very common um, experience. So we've been talking a little bit about, and you mentioned nitrous oxide, but um, what are some of the, the, the anesthetics that you use in the office setting or your group uses in the office setting and maybe broad families and, and you know, methods that which you, you know, you give these, these agents? Well, I, I, we don't use everything that's on the market, but we use in our practice, we will use uh, inhaled nit nitrous oxide, uh, never more than uh, 50%. In fact, our, 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 uh, machine will not let us administer more than 50% nitrous oxide. So we really can't uh, overdo it. A lot of these patients are around 35% uh, nitrous oxide, but we'll use inhaled nitrous oxide. We'll use uh, oral benzodiazepines as uh, anxiolytics, and we'll use uh, combinations of uh, fentanyl and propofol predominantly in our practice. So, so maybe just with the, the, the nitrous oxide, um, are there, are there specific, uh, patients where you say, okay, you know, nitrous oxide's off the table here. We, we just can't use it in these folks. Um, who, who are the folks that you can't use, use the nitrous oxide? In? You can't really use nitrous oxide in, in broad categories in patients with uh, COPD, if they've had recent, uh, eye surgery or have significant cardiac conditions, you know, it, and um, th those are non those are non-starters. And 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 so um, with regards to maybe just um, you know very basic. So you, you were talking about some of the oral agents. Th those seem like they they're a little more intuitive of how we would give those. Uh, do those patients take the oral agents after they have arrived, or or do they actually take it prior to coming to the office setting? Like, what's the timing that you give these these therapies? Well, it's not unusual that we'll have somebody uh, take, uh, you know, a, ben a benzodiazepine, you know, forty five minutes to an hour before their procedure, and uh, so typically in, in our practice, we're uh, we're a community based practice, so usually the patients will take it at home because they're they live 10, 15 minutes away, um, but. It, and that's how we generally do it. It's not unusual that if somebody 
is coming from a long distance that they may wait to take it until they, they may wait and take the medicine when they arrive in the office. And then with regards to what's, what is sort of the, the infrastructure with the intravenous agents, whether it's fentanyl, propofol, ketamine, do, how is that, um, is there a certain area that the patients go into that, you, that is it a procedure room or is there some sort of like um, a pre-preparation area where they'll have the intravenous placed? How, how does that operationalize? We do, we do. We have, we have uh, in our waiting room, we have, we have we have a large waiting room um, in our in our main office, and with three doors to three three different areas. There's a, a radiation area, the main surgery area, and the uh, procedure. So the patient will go to the uh, procedure area, and we have a, an area where there we have two bays, and they they're finished out with curtains, just like a, a holding area. Uh, in an, in an operating room. And then we finished out two rooms with, um, uh, with anesthesia, with full, with full anesthesia. So we're able to do that. And in mm -hmm. fact, there are times when we, we, we bring in nurse anesthetists to even administer LMAs and general anesthetics for, uh, uh other patients. This is really, um, for our practice, it works out really well because we are not a surgery center. And what it does is it, uh, we can bill on uh, office codes. Mm -hmm. Some people will support this. Uh, some people think it may not be the best idea, but what it does is globally, it saves money. We're billing on, on office, on office codes. Uh, and the, and most of the, a lot of these are essentially office procedures um, anyway. And then once they, they're prepped and consented, you know, in the, uh, in the, preparate in the holding area, if you will, they have their procedure. And then we have two additional bays that are, um, uh, that are used for recovery. And we have design, designated nurses for, for this. These, the nurses who work in our procedure area do not work in other parts uh, of our practice. They're not grooming hmm. grooming patients for, uh, for office cystoscopies. They're not taking vital signs to put patients in the rooms. So, you know, one of the things they have in, um, in Pennsylvania, and I, I don't know if it's, it's uh, different um, for you, but, you know, we, we have this, the PDMP with regards to monitoring, you know, the control substances. And if a patient, for example, has a history of any kind of abuse or addiction, we, we get all these warnings on our electronic medical record that alert us on a potentially higher risk patient with the idea being just to be cognizant that this is in the background so you know that when you, I don't know, give the patient a prescription after they, you've had a procedure that, that, you know, there's this in the background. How, what is your setup when you're giving a lot of these agents, which obviously you're giving in the setting of a procedure, um, are you able to look at, you know, these potential risks of the patient outside of, of, you know, that moment that they're in the office coming in for index procedure X of other medications, other uh, potential risks that they might have from, from you know uh, addiction exposure, how, how do you navigate that? Yeah, that, that that's all that's all reviewed uh, preoperatively, and we that's all reviewed through a K. We're in Kansas through a K-Trax system, okay. and, and we're notified through that. 
Got it. So th there is a system, and and so is that is that sort of fall on the the surgeon or or the practitioner to have that sort of referenced before the day of the procedure, before the patient is there. It does. It does. Got it. So you know, I, I'm sure it's not quite as easy as simply giving um, giving the agents right. It's uh, you know the the the. the I always think that the, the challenging part is what do you need to have from an office readiness point of view um, to support, um, you know, the good and the bad. So what is the office set up, you know, with regards to when you're going to be giving such conscious sedation in the office, what you need to have to ensure you don't run into a bad outcome? Well, in this setting, you have to approach it from the worst case scenario because, you know, although we're in a city and, you know, but, you know, in all seriousness, in terms of the office itself, you have to have oxygen, suction, airways, all, all resuscitation equipment, the ability to ventilate a patient. You have to have a defibrillator, crash cart, reversal drugs. Uh, staff has, has to be trained at, at, every, at every step. Um, and I had a patient uh, actually not with one of these procedures, but I had the, you know, the classic patient um, who had uh, symptomatic bradycardia in our office about uh, six, six weeks ago. So all the, all the things you, you, you prep for uh, in an office, but they have to be all in working order uh, and the people in the room have to be trained. Um, monitor, so we monitor blood pressure, oxygen saturation, cardiac rhythm. Um, the one issue with respect to uh, nitrous uh, is that you have to actually can have people come into uh control the exhaled nitrous so that it's uh, so that it's uh, removed from the room mm. um, because uh, and you have to make sure the person is trained who is uh, at the bedside to make sure the seal on the nitrous is, is proper so even though you talk to the patient and give them instructions you we communicate with a lot of hand motions thumbs up thumbs down mm. uh, give the give the okay sign because we don't want to break that seal hmm. interesting the um, and and in in the setting of all of this, do you generally so you have your nursing staff? I'm assuming any is is the entire office ACLS certified, or there are certain key members that in the office that are ACLS certified to to be the point persons if there's any kind of issue. Or key key members, you know. In other, in other words, the you know the nurse. Uh, Who's uh, at the head of the bed with with the patient is is ACLS certified. The uh, uh, all, all the doctors are uh, ACLS certified in the room. So usually there are at least two people in the room who are ACLS certified. And and in general for for some of these procedures that uh, so you were saying a little bit earlier, will you do sort of LMA um, anesthesia in in the office setting or that that. Or that yeah, that's a little outside of this discussion, but we we have the capability of doing that. We don't do we don't do very much, but occasionally we'll do the uh, if there's somebody that's uh, you know we we can do minor scrotal you know minor open scrotal surgery um, and inguinal surgery uh, in our office, and some of those patients will require a, an LMA. And in those cases, at, at what point is that is that the decision point when you'll have an anesthesiologist or a CRNA that will come in? Or, yes. or is that sort of the break point of any time there's airway manipulation that that you'll you'll sort of escalate? We, if we think there's a slightest chance of an airway manipulation, we have a nurse anesthetist at the head of the bed. And and what is the 
the, the well, maybe I it will it'll broadly go into the concept of implementation. So patients coming in, may, maybe walk us through what the flow is. Patients coming in with regards to, for example, vasectomy. And, and it's a patient that uh, that's a you know, very common procedure and, and the patient clearly is anxious and is going to need some type of sedation. So how does that workflow start from the time that they walk into the office all the way through the, the sort of the procedure to the recovery? How does that work in your, your office setting? Well, in, in our office, uh, if we choose, there are really two pathways. Uh, most of the doctors will do a, uh, a, 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 oftentimes doctor will do a vasectomy using just an oral benzodiazepine. And those patients are awake and alert. And they're, and most of them are still anxious. Um, I always tell them the taking a benzodiazepine doesn't take away the anxiety. It just makes it more doable, <laughs> not, le- not less anxious because they have their wits about them. So those patients come in and they're generally, uh, we generally do those in, in exam rooms. We'll do a, um, a before and after of blood pressure in those patients. Um, and, uh, and usually that's a, a minor procedure. And those patients can really, really self-manage themselves mm-hmm. in terms of getting on and on and off the table. If uh, patients uh, comes in and really doesn't want to know anything, mm-hmm. um, and he's the anxious vasectomy patient who just can't bring himself to uh, get over that anxiety, then he'll, he'll come in through our procedure, our procedure side He'll have an IV started. He'll be uh, consented. He'll be in our, in our holding area. Um, because of that could be Pandora's box. And as a urologist, I'm not, not at the head of the bed and not really in control when I'm doing the vasectomy. So we will have a nurse anesthetist uh, there. And so the urologist really won't be administering the sedation. And they'll generally give administer uh, uh, the sedation. And that oftentimes is, uh, might be a little bit of uh, fentanyl and a little bit of propofol uh, for those patients to keep them, uh, keep them sedated. And so in our practice, that really rises above uh, what we would ask our nursing staff to do. Okay. And then we would have, and then of course, because that patient has had varying degrees of anesthesia and narcotic, uh, then we, you know, we recover that patient just like we would recover a patient with an LMA. And and where do they recover? So so is there a certain area that they? I mean, maybe we talked about this. Yeah, before. we have we have we have a small recovery room area. Okay, and and they're monitored. They, I'm sure they must meet certain they're, criteria. They're, they're, they're monitored. They're, they're on pulse oximeter and uh, uh, in, in rhythm and cardiac rhythm monitoring continuously. And there's a nurse sitting right at their bedside. So you, you mentioned this a little bit, but maybe just tell me a little bit, how does the consenting process for these procedures work in the setting of when they're getting um, any of these therapies, whether it's, it's, I don't know, they're taking the benzodiazepine before they come in versus uh, they're getting obviously the more significant sedation. How does that uh, consenting process work? When is it done? Um, how, how does that factor into the workflow? So usually, uh, uh, you know, vasectomy is a, g- a good example of that because we worked long and hard on our uh, informed consent uh, for vasectomy, as I think most people have. So, so the, vasectomy is really a two-step process because they'll come in for a consultation first, and usually they've they, they've read the paperwork. We have a video 
about half the time the patients have watched the video. And so they come in relatively well-informed and they usually can, will tell us if they want a, the uh, medication or not. So usually they'll, we do as much of the paperwork and the consenting process before the day of the vasectomy. So we're not consenting somebody when they have the medication on board. For somebody who, interestingly, a number of patients don't want any medication and uh, we will still generally consent that patient as well to, but uh, at least in my mind, I'm not as anxious about the consent sure. in, in the non-benzodiazepine patient as I am the benzodiazepine patient. With respect to the uh, patient who uh, is going to be sedated, um, oftentimes they're consented because that's part of the part of the process. But um, if they're getting, say, a, a fusion biopsy and they're not sedated, not uh, consented, then they'll be consented um, in the holding area okay. before the procedure. And they're getting, you know, we meet them and greet them and uh, give them all the, all the uh, usual uh, and have the usual discussion uh, before the procedure. Sure. So um, medical legal implications, you know, it's like the society we live in now, right? So you always have to, are there any specific medical legal um implications that you think of when, when you're looking at giving conscious sedation um, of various forms, but certainly when you're going to the, the intravenous realm and whatnot um, in the office setting, what, what should we be thinking about as, as, yeah, you know, I mean, you know, this, this is something that I, I have to give a disclaimer because this, this is something that should be, you know, discussed uh, and with, uh, with the practices attorneys and also um the state laws need need to be reviewed. Um, so we actually have a consent form for anesthesia because sometimes we don't know how far we're going to take it. So they might as well be consented. So so they are consented, but really it depends on what the local laws are. So there are usually two consent forms, a consent for the anesthesia and a consent for the uh, procedure. Now, if we're doing a, a, an office vasectomy, uh, there that's uh, rolled into the vasectomy consent. Um, the oral benzodiazepine, you know, but we don't have a separate consent for that. And, and then you talked about it a little bit earlier, but um, maybe, maybe at a high level, walk us through a little bit. How, how does the billing work for, for this? Uh, I, I mean, obviously you talked a little bit about the office setting, but, but uh, maybe just t talk to us a little bit about billing and, and the coding that you do and how, how that might be different versus just the straight local procedures, for example? Well, you know, there's not, again, you have better check with your uh, uh, office managers and, and coding uh, specialists. But if we're, if you're doing it in the office, um, usually a lot of times the anesthetic is rolled into the, uh, the, the cost of the uh, treatment. There are times when uh, there will be a, a separate charge for the anesthesia, and and that's generally a, agreed upon beforehand. And and in general, um, do, does your office typically work through the, the standard pre-authorization procedure to vetting out those sort of billing questions before day of oh, procedure for these? Yeah, that's that's a great question because that, that's an absolute must. Um, people don't mind billing issues as long as. I should say they don't mind. We all mind billing issues. Um, but we can deal with them 
in a non-adversarial manner if all the questions are put on the, all the issues are put on the table before the day of the procedure, mm-hmm. um, discussing uh, billing issues and the day of the procedure really adds an entirely different level of uh, anxiety to the patients and really, it, it really ought to be taken care of beforehand. So we like everybody else, try to manage that uh, completely the day before the procedure. Great. Well, David, that, that was really, um, very insightful, very helpful. Any, any final thoughts or comments for you? Anything perhaps I, I didn't, you know, cover in, in this uh, conversation? No, I think you did a nice job of, uh, <laughs> of covering this topic. We got a little bit outside, um, you know, the urology conscious sedation, you know, and talking about some of the LMA and, and some of the nurse anesthetist uh, role. Um, but we have found it really, really nice to be able to do that in our office. Um, again, we're not a surgery center, um, but in terms of, you know, when we show our setup to the insurance companies, um, it's, we've, we've been, had very good reception from the, from the payers. That's great. Well, I, again, I want to uh, thank, uh, uh, Dr. Bach, very much for his time and uh, his his thoughtfulness in, in going through this. Uh, I want to thank our audience. And and certainly, um, for more information, I, I would certainly encourage you to visit us at auanet.org slash university um, or to subscribe to the AUA update series. And, and indeed, there, there is an update series article that goes into a lot of these concepts, perhaps even in greater detail than what we covered today. Uh, David, again, thanks so much. Really enjoyed the conversation. Jay, thank you. Subscribe today to the 2022 update series at auau.auanet.org.